Wonderful. Thank you very, very much, guys. Uh, thank you, David and Emily, for playing for us. Thank you, Han, uh, for keeping us right uh, this morning. And it's, again, it's wonderful uh, to see you all here. If you do have your Bibles, if you do have Bibles with you, please do open them to 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, that'll really help uh, as we go through this. Um, also, uh, the, the reading will come up sporadically on the, the, the uh, screen behind me uh, <clears throat> when we get to certain points. But let me welcome you back uh, to 1 Peter as we start off our new series together over the course of this term. And as with any series, I am really excited about getting stuck in and following this letter all the way through uh, to the very end. And if you remember from last week, as we introduced <clears throat> the book, uh, we said that we are embarking on a series in a letter about, uh, which is all about and deeply concerned with the grace of God and authentic, real Christianity in the light of that in the middle of a hard, brutal and real world of suffering and persecution for the sake of the gospel. But um, we're not just invited uh, by Peter to be introduced merely to an understanding of the grace of God in a purely theological sense, but we are invited to deeply appropriate it. That is, we are invited to, to stand firm in it, to live life knowing that it is true and to allowing that truth to have a material effect on our lives. That's the reason that Peter is writing this letter. We see that right at the end in chapter 5, verse 12. We looked at that last week by Silvanus. Peter writes, a faithful brother as I regard him. That's the person through whom he sent the letter. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So what we're looking at over the course of this term then is, is the true grace of God. So the next question is, obviously, well, what is the true grace of God. That's what the whole of the rest of the letter is, is dealing to unpack. What does the true grace of God look like? How does one stand firm in it? Well, this brings us to our first point of three this morning. And this first point is a bit of a recap from last week. For before we can understand the true grace of God and know what it means to stand firm in it, we always have to be reminded of, point one, the chosen recipients of the true grace of God. For remember who Peter is writing to. He is informing, if you remember, his readers of this true grace of God because of who and where they are. They are exiles. That's what we read in verses 1 and 2. They are scattered. They are strangers. They are alone. They are different. And as a consequence, they suffer greatly. They're not accepted. They are maligned. They're uncomfortable. And they are all those things because they are God's. They are not the world's. They don't belong to the world. They belong to God. They are his possession. They are God's people in the earth. To, to be elect is to be chosen and foreloved by God. That's what we looked at last week. And to be an exile is to be someone who is away from home, waiting to, to return, to go back home. And to be both, to be both elect and an exile is to be a child of God. All the way through the Bible, God's people are called both of those things, chosen and exiles. Abraham, if you remember from our series in Genesis, uh, he is called a sojourner, a, a wanderer, a nomad. He is an exile, a stranger in, in the land that he doesn't know. Someone who was chosen specifically by God, taken out of his home and sent to, to wandering for tens of years, waiting for the promised land, being shown different parts of it over the course of his life his future home. 
In Exodus, if you remember, when we looked at Exodus a few terms back, God's people are described as exiles living in Egypt. They are waiting to be redeemed, to be saved, and brought to the promised land, to their real home. In in Deuteronomy, God's people are still wandering strangers in the wilderness, but are called chosen time and time again. You are my chosen people. You are my chosen people. You are my son. You you haven't got an earthly home yet, but you are chosen. I'm going to bring you to your home. In other words, right up front, Peter wants his readers, these scattered Christians across this enormous area of, of modern-day Turkey, to know that they are the real deal. You are authentic Christians. You are authentic children of God. You may feel subjugated and under trial and pressure for your faith, small pockets of dispersed Christians in a massive part of the pagan world, but you are the real deal. They are authentic people of God, given the designation of authenticity under him, elect and exile. You are a genuine part of God's true people and his work in the world. Don't panic, in other words. You're scattered, but you are nonetheless still chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. You are sanctified by God's Holy Spirit for obedience, for the washing by God's Son, says Peter. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in your life. To be foreknown is to be known personally, if you remember. It's not just that God knows about you, as in he knows of you. Oh, yes, I understand there's a group of people. I'm vaguely aware of what's going on. He knows you, knows you. He he foreknew them. He pursued you and loved you before the foundation of the earth. And to be sanctified, well, that simply means to be set apart. You are supremely significant. It's like the the sanctified butter knife. We had one in our family. Uh, When we were growing up, Dad would put a knife on the table and it was used for nothing else but the butter and so help any of us if we put it into the marmalade jar. That was not what it's used for. It's been set apart for a very deliberate and important purpose. It's the same with us. That's what you are, says Peter. You are set apart for an incredible purpose, for known, sanctified by God the Spirit, for a life of obedience to God the Son, washed in his blood. As we think about these Christians, as we recap last week, but, but before we move on, I don't know if you know how, how massive this area of, of modern-day Turkey is that this group sort of cover. I looked at it this week, and the British Isles can fit into this area between sort of ancient Pontus and Cappadocian Asia Minor, and all those, ten times over. It is enormous. It's, it's a vast expanse of land. And, and, and there would have been no communication, very little between the two. And if you think about that space of land, there's sort of a handful of Christians here. There's a, there's a pocket of Christian here. There's, there's, there's eight or nine there. There's two or three over here. I mean, it's astonishing. They are tiny communities, totally overshadowed by the world around them, separated from each other. And so imagine, as we begin to get ourselves into this book, and I think we're really bad at this as Christians, we we, we forget to to try and incorporate ourselves into what it would have felt for the first readers of the time to really hear this stuff. Imagine how they would have heard it. You you eight or nine Christians in Pontus. You are small, overshadowed exiles, as the people of God has always been. But you are on your way to a new land because you are part of God's holy people. You are the real deal. Don't give in. You eight or nine in Galatia, you weak group of scattered believers. Do you remember that you are chosen and handpicked by God the Father to be his possession and and, and that you have always been his elect, his chosen ones? Don't give in. You eight or nine in Cappadocia, did you know that you were foreknown before the foundation of the earth? 
loved before you were born, and you were a part of God's eternal plan. Sanctified and set apart for God and God alone, for his work, for eternity, by Christ's blood itself. Don't give in. This is electrifying stuff. If you belong to Jesus this morning, you will feel scattered and alone and different and alien and out of place. But my goodness me, are you chosen and loved and sanctified and washed by God the Father. The whole of the Trinity brought to bear on your very lives as you are chosen and highly privileged. That's the same with us today, isn't it? You one Christian in your open office of 50 people. You are small and overshadowed, feel totally out of place. But did you know that you are God's exile, his chosen one in that place? Set apart for his eternal purposes, hanging over you. You two students living in a hall of residence of 150 others. Did you know that you are sprinkled by the blood of Christ? With the weight of the Trinity on you as you become God's own possession in the earth? Don't give in. Here, then, are the chosen recipients, elect exiles, God's strangers, us. That's exactly what we are. But as we can see, Peter wants them to know the true grace of God, such that they stand firm in it. So what we need to do today as we move on to the rest of the letter and for the rest of the term is to really look at what this true grace of God is. Well, in answering this question, the first thing Peter does is move into a phase of irrepressible praise and worship as he starts on honing in on the future glory of the true grace of God. That is our second point this morning, the future glory of the true grace of God. And we see that vibrantly in verses three to five. Just follow along with me as we read that again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. These verses sort of begin with an outburst of unrestrained praise, don't they? And I hope that is very much what our hearts will be doing as we look at this. It should be. It shouldn't be we just go away from here going, that was a very helpful methodical. It should be that I want to praise the Lord Jesus for what I've learned today. These verses contain some of the greatest descriptions in the whole of Scripture as to what is in store for us as exiles and aliens in the world. Namely, what is in store for us by way of what Peter describes here as an imperishable inheritance. And what marks this inheritance out as deeply praiseworthy by Peter is, first of all, the sheer unshakable security of it. It is unshakably secure. What is this inheritance? Uh, Well, it is quite simply future glory. Verse 3, that's what we see there. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the resurrection to eternal life. This inheritance is future glory, and it is unshakably secure because it rests on the solid fact in real space-time history of the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself from the dead. See that? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That actually happened, says Peter. That that's real. It's a fact. It actually happened in our world. This isn't fantasy. Be sure of it. But more than that, from the end of verse 4, you'll notice that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. 
how. Well, look at the beginning of verse 5. It's kept in heaven for you, you who by God's power are being guarded through faithful salvation. You see, he he will keep this inheritance as he will guard and keep you. Both are the same thing. As much as I keep this inheritance for you, I am holding and guarding and keeping you. So this inheritance isn't, for example, like the Afghan currency, which if you were to have it in your hand on this day would be dwindling every second you held it. Or like Andy Murray's fitness, for example, which sort of wanes with the dying of each year, poor soul. Or an aged professor's memory and intellect, which she loses more of as she fights against the dying of the light. All of those things giving way to decline and ruin with, it, with time. Not with this inheritance, says Jesus. This inheritance is unshakably secure. And it's not only unshakably secure, it's also imperishably durable. This inheritance that is promised to these group of elect exiles is totally imperishable. It's not as if it is merely being kept secure for us, but but when we get it, like a normal inheritance, well, then we'll start spending it and eventually sort of runs out on us. Not at all. This inheritance will not perish. Perish is going to be a, a big word for us as we go through this series. It's a word that comes up a lot. It's a big theme as we go through 1 Peter. In this letter, flowers and grass are described as being perishable. Gold is described as being perishable. An incredibly valuable metal. In in the light of this inheritance in the hands of this God, it is perishable. For what God has done for us in and through the living Lord Jesus Christ, says Peter, who has conquered death, it is utterly secure. The benefits of the cross of Christ, the victory over sin won in him, are truly eternal and are perfectly and immovably kept by him and guarded by him. This future glory, this inheritance, it is imperishable. Furthermore, it is eternally undefiled. What God has in store for us, his people, in other words, will never spoil. Meaning that there's no dirty or dark secret sort of pinning it up behind it that's sort of going to be revealed it's going to spoil everything it's going to bring it down there's no investigative journalism that will unearth some hidden past misdemeanor that will ruin it there's no there's no flip side of the coin there's no dirt to dig on it there's no weakness that sort of balances out its strengths there's no pros and cons list attached to it there's there's sort of no unfortunate unforeseen consequences there's no buyer's remorse no small print no catch it's pure It is good. It is spotless. It is untarnished. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfailing. It it will never grow old. It never loses its glow. You'll never need to take photos of it to remind you of what it was like. Do you remember? It used to look like this back. Oh, those are the days. It's not like that. It doesn't fade. It doesn't change. It doesn't lose its luster. It's always unfading, unblemished imperishable. In other words, says Peter to these elect exiles, whatever you are feeling with, feeling and struggling with now, elect exile, I guarantee you, says God the Father, that you are going through, that what you are going through is the total antithesis of what you will, will feel and experience the moment you get your hands on this imperishable, undefiled and unfading inheritance. It will, without any sense of hyperbole or salesmanship, be everything you have ever desired, and it will never run out of you. 
And unlike your lives now, it will never disappoint. And I guarantee that, says God the Father, on the body of my Son. And it is the body of God's Son which makes all the difference here, because Peter's description doesn't stop there. Peter continues by looking at the undeserved generosity with which this inheritance is given. Can you see at the beginning of the next verse the way Peter builds up this astonishing measure of God's generosity? Uh, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. So then this imperishable, unshakable inheritance comes to us undeservedly through the lavish generosity of the love and mercy of God, meaning that we receive it for nothing that we have done or contributed to, ever. And it all depends on the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's Son himself. In other words, do you realize how rich you are, elect exiles? Chosen, foreknown, set apart, washed, but also lavished over with this incredible generosity of God the Father. Do you realize the extent that this inheritance was won for you, says Peter? How expensive it was. It's so expensive. It was won through mercy. That is, you didn't earn it. It's not as if this inheritance was always yours to begin with and you're merely getting what's due. You didn't earn it. You're not eligible for it on your own. It was given through mercy. But more than that, it's not as if God sort of shrugs his shoulders and goes, oh, there you go, it's yours, and throws it at you. It's going to have to be given through the death of his son. That's what it was going to cost him for you to have this inheritance. It is incredibly expensive. Christ died for this to be given to you. Can you see? It's quite amazing. Peter's logic and argument is bustling and buzzing and fizzing. It's sort of falling over each other as they go through it. It's so extraordinary. It's all tied in together. Jesus died and rose again so that you could have this exiles. You didn't even deserve it in the first place, you exiles. All by God's mercy. It's such an expensive and undeserved inheritance, you exiles. Oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember our second point last week. As followers of Jesus in the world, you will feel so very different and uncomfortable and odd and hated. But when you truly understand what it is you get with Jesus, my goodness, will you want to be? And of course, it goes without saying that this is all wrapped up in a future emphasis, isn't it? It is an inheritance, verse 4. The very word means something received in the future. But look at verse 5. It is also called a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means we don't see it yet, basically. We don't see this salvation yet. Peter calls this future glory our salvation. He doesn't mean that we're not saved now, but rather the fulfillment of our salvation in our resurrection from the dead. That's not actually happened yet, has it? Those of us who are here, we have not died. Those of us who have died before us, they've been spiritually raised, but but, but they're yet to be bodily raised in Christ. There's that still to happen. There is one more future day of salvation left, and that is when Jesus returns and calls us home. The true grace of God, therefore, is fundamentally wrapped up in a future reality. And that's really important. That's why Peter starts here when he's talking to elect exiles. That's why we don't feel at home. 
because we're saved to a future inheritance we don't fully see yet. But we're literally not home. It's why we feel different. We're sort of living in what's called the, the, the now and the not yet. There's a real tension there. That's the future that we're living for. As someone wisely once said, if a church is offering you everything now, then don't take it. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of perpetual material blessing on earth as God's chosen people is not true. It has no place in the true grace of God. It is not part of the word of God because Christians are suffering exiles. Not rich, wealthy people with tons of stuff living in luxury. It doesn't mean that we can't have money, but, but, but that is not what we are aimed to be doing this side of eternity. That's not what we're living for. Rather, we are living for a future glory, future riches, future perfect, abundant blessing. An exile is not home. An exile is homesick. An exile looks forward eagerly. Wherever you are, Christian, through the rest of this week, here in Edinburgh, however strange your setting in Edinburgh is, God has in store for you a future inheritance more glorious than you can ever imagine. You have been born again into his family to a living eternal hope through his resurrection from the dead. So what does that mean for us now? Well, that means we don't need to hoard. We don't need to panic in the way that the world panics. We don't need to put our shares into an earthly future saving. It doesn't matter about what house I have or what car I have or how many friends I have or whether I'm respected or loved or seen or noticed or applauded. Because it's all perishable, that stuff. It's all rubbishy. It's trite. It's flimsy. It's glib. It's nothing. It does nothing for me, all those things. It shouldn't do anyway. We're not living for that. I'm living for something much greater. It's a bit like an heir to a billion-pound fortune, which is to come to him on his 18th birthday panicking and breaking down in tears at the age of 17 because his friend has earned 20 quid more than he did that week, and he's really jealous. And so he works double shifts next week to try and catch up to hunt for that extra quid. That's madness. Why on earth would you bother when in 12 months' time you're going to inherit billions? That seems like a, a weird way of putting it, but that's very much what is going on in our lives. It's the same with us exiles, except we're not waiting for billions of pounds. That's perishable. We're waiting for a future eternal glory with the God of eternity. This inheritance kept in heaven for you, being guarded by his power. There's no downside, all given through his mercy, through the resurrection of his son, Jesus, from the dead. Yours, as children of God, a glorious future of the true grace of God. It is wonderfully imperishable. Let's move on to our last point this morning, and that is the present experience of the true grace of God. And this is, we're going to jump down to verses 10 to 12 for a bit, because the, the, the true grace of God is described by Peter of, as having been anticipated and spoken about for millennia before Jesus came. That's what we see in verse 10. That's what's going on at the end of this bit. Concerning the salvation, says Peter, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, he's saying to the elect exiles, search and inquired carefully. They really wanted to know what was going on, in other words. Inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Who's it going to be, in other words? They're thinking, they're saying, they're preaching. We'd love to know. We know. <laughs> it's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the grace of God in Christ, in other words, is not a newfangled thing. It's not sort of a late-stage invention or a latter-day innovation. It's almost certainly not, it's definitely not, of the Old Testament idea of salvation through threat and law. Well, that didn't work, and so God panics, and he decides to send his son last minute to see if that works. That's not at all what's going on in the Bible. The grace of God, specifically in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, has history. It's got provenance. Centuries beforehand, Jesus was spoken of, verse 12, it was revealed to them, the ancient prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It's amazing stuff. If you're a believing Christian, you're in possession of ancient truths before the creation of the world about a present reality so great that even those who are with Jesus, the angels long desperately to understand it. But the incredible truth of this future glory that angels long to understand in us, which has deep roots in the past, as Jesus is prepared for and extolled and foreshadowed for thousands of years, is seated deeply in a glorious present reality. And this is important for us as we go through the rest of this book. For this present reality is how we live in the true grace of God now. And that is described in verses 6 to 9. This is where we'll finish. And verses 6 to 9 shows an extraordinary mixture of experiences that we read here. There is both productive dark trial and love and joy and faith. And both of those things seem to go hand in hand with each other. In 8 and 9, you see the love and joy. Though you have not seen him... You love him. That is Jesus. Though you do not now see Jesus, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your very souls. Because you've had revealed to you these things that angels long to look into, you can live a life of joy. The Lord Jesus Christ has conquered death, who paid for sin, who opened up the life gates of heaven for you. You know the historical Lord Jesus through his word. You know the living risen Christ for yourself. And therefore your current experience, though difficult, and though you don't see him, is one that is sort of riven through with perpetual joy and love. This is the experience of unutterable, glorious joy and love and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the present experience of the Christian. It should be at certain points in our lives, bubbling to the surface, love and joy. I love Jesus. As we trust in the historical Jesus and look forward to the glorious future. In other words, you're not a Christian because you go to church. And many, many people believe that to be true. Maybe some of you here in this building or watching online, maybe that's what you think. If I go to church on a Sunday morning, God's going to be pleased with me because I've deigned to turn up and tug my forelock at him. I've ticked the God box and all is well. Many people think Christianity is about being decent, whatever your understanding of being decent is, and you're going to keep God happy by going to church, and that's fab. Well, that is absolutely not the case. Because Christianity isn't about you. Christianity is about Christ. Jesus is at the heart of Christianity. It's all about him. He is the one 
into whom angels really want to look, the one who was spoken about for centuries and millennia before his coming, and then who broke into history as a fact on, on the table of history, the turning point of history. Christianity is all about him. And so those who are Christians, authentic Christians, come to know and love him. Note, not love the world or, or love myself. They love him and, and rejoice with unutterable joy in all that he has done for us and all that he will do for us. And so we love him because he is good, this Jesus. We love him because he is kind. We love him because he is pure. We love him because he is selfless. We love him because he's great. We love him because he's faithful. We love him because he's glorious. We love him because he's supremely powerful. We love him because he left the glory of heaven, descended to earth, deliberately to be nailed to a cross, to carry God's judgment of our own personal rebellion against God, and he rose victorious from the dead. And we love him for that. And we love him because now he is enthroned at God's right hand, and he is enabling me to call God Father. Go to Pontus. And you will hear the word say, oh, I love Jesus from those eight or nine Christians. Walk to Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia. I love Jesus. And I rejoice with unutterable joy because of all that he has made me, small and insignificant and weak, but irrepressibly joyful because I am an heir with Christ, an heir to the throne of God. You can take your mansions and your academic success and, and your wealth, says the exile in the world, surrounded by it all, I have Jesus, I love Jesus. Ready to receive access to the throne room of the creator of the earth. The world has nothing to offer me that is incomparable to what Christ has done for me and what he now offers in this inheritance. But mingled with this joy... This true grace of God comes with the present experience of productive, difficult, and testing trial. And this is where we finish in verses 6 to 7. This will flavor the whole book from this point on. In this, we read, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is where we come back to where we started our sermon last Sunday. For in order to get a true measure of what situation Peter is speaking into, we have to understand what these various trials are that these scattered, exilic Christians are facing in this present experience of the true grace of God. And this is the first time we see them mentioned. And I said last week, from uh, what we're going to see presented to us over the course of this letter, this term, the sufferings and trials here are, is not all-out rampant persecution if you like, it is not bodies of Christians being piled high and burned, people cut in half, etc., etc. That, heartbreakingly, is not going to be very far away from these people in a few decades' time under Rome. They will suffer incredible persecution, but, 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 but not yet. What they are suffering now is the daily grind of the world against them in every way, in normal, everyday life. And don't take my word for it. Let's do a whiz through the whole of the letter and see what type of suffering is mentioned. I'm going to go through this quickly. Feel free to follow afterwards and trust that I'm not I'm leading you on. Uh, chapter 2, verse 12, we see that these guys are spoken against as evildoers. Chapter 2, verse 19, suffering unjustly all the time. Chapter 3, verse 9, being reviled and spoken of badly. Chapter 3, verse 13, suffering for doing what is right. That really stings, doesn't it? 
Chapter 4, verse 4, being maligned for not joining in with the wicked, smutty evil of the pagan world. Chapter 4, verse 14, being insulted for the name of Christ. Can you see this? This is everyday suffering. The daily, day in, day out, grist to the mill of holding firm to the Christian faith. Holding firm to the name and ethics and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ up against the world. I'm feeling the deep disconnection between the two and really suffering because of it till it really hurts. Those of you who are students, choosing not to join in with the revelry and the hedonism of Freshers' Week or, or the Friday, Saturday nights and being made to feel like an outcast in your halls of residence because of it. Or when you make the right choice at work and you don't do what others are doing and you pay the price. I remember um, someone telling me a true story a number of years ago about a Christian friend of his who had discovered that a few guys in his team were at work, they were at work and, and they were watching pornography at work on their work computers. And he pulled them up on it and threatened to take it higher up as it broke every policy in the book, not least how dehumanizing and degrading and fatal the pornographic industry to women and girls across the world. And these two men in anger at being caught filed away photos and images on his computer, cleaned theirs, shopped into the boss, and he was sacked without pay. His defense was laughed at. It makes your blood boil, doesn't it? That's the life of the exile, says Peter. Chapter 2, verse 19, suffering deep injustice. Chapter 3, verse 13, suffering for doing what is right. That's what these Christians are going through, and it is brutal, and it is everyday, and it is relentless, being passed over for promotions because of the ethics you hold, because of the hijinks that you don't get involved with. Seeing your children bullied and passed over and uncomfortable at school because they're your children. Children of Christian parents trying to hold the line of their faith in the most brutal setting in the secular world, the playground. And you do these things, you forego these things, you suffer these things, you bear these things because you are living for and you love Jesus. And you are looking forward to your future inheritance. And you've been set apart for obedience for him and washed clean by him and you don't want to enter into that and you'll suffer at the hands of the world as a consequence. These trials are everyday trials. It seems like us, for these exiles, there's an underlying current at home, on the campus, in the office, in the media, in the market, at the wider political, social environment, the constant reviling, insulting, degrading of Christians. And Peter wants them to know that this present experience is the authentic experience of the true grace of God in the light of what in the past has been spoken about Jesus, in the light of in the future what you were promised for in Jesus, so stand firm in it. We're not asked to revel in it. Have you noticed? We're not asked to sort of masochistically call suffering on us and become really obnoxious just to get a rise out of people. That is anti-Christ. That is not how we are meant to live. We are, uh, we are asked to stand, not to seek out trials, but to stand firmly in them. Because, says Peter, this is very temporary. The day of Christ's salvation will be revealed. The question for us as we close, do we fully believe this and do we live out living under this future imperishable, undefiled and unfading inheritance? 
In those moments of bitter trial, do we apprehend the true grace of God in those moments? Standing on the historical fact of the Lord Jesus' death and his resurrection, knowing that we are living for something much greater, much more brilliant, much more glorious. Something that is eternal and undying. Do we stand firm in that, knowing that it is kept in heaven for us, that we are kept and guarded by him? Do we truly believe that in those moments? In those moments, do we believe that God is good, that the gospel is true, that his grace is sure, his inheritance for me is imperishable, his love is unending, and the life that he asks us to lead is the way that we keep going? Even when everything is screaming at you that it really isn't, that none of it is true, because it is. It really is. It really is the true grace of God. Do we stand firm in the true grace of God, knowing that future glory that will not cease to be mine, it will not cease to be yours in Christ? So look what lies ahead of us, Redeemer. In those moments in everyday life where the world seems massive and strong and immovable and right, look at your inheritance. Look at what Christ has done. Look at how perishable and temporary the world is around you and knows what is yours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you and praise you so very much uh, for your goodness to us in the gospel. Thank you for what we have been reading here um, over these past two weeks. Thank you for uh, the letter of 1 Peter that galvanizes us as Christians in the world to stand firm in the true grace of God, to stand fast, to not buckle, to not give in, to not be tempted by the things that the world promised, which seem so easy and so immediate and so wonderful. Lord, help us to follow the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ through suffering and death and out into eternal life. Heavenly Father, help us not to, to, to seek a trial in an unhelpful way. Help us to love those around us, to live self-controlled lives, to be circumspect, to, in, to enjoy living life with the people around us. But Heavenly Father, please, please keep us strong. We are promised that we will suffer and we will suffer. And we pray very much that we will suffer with grace. Um, and that you would help us to love each other as we do. Thank you. That is why that we are put in as part of church families, that we can be together, suffer well with each other and for each other and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, please hold us firm this term. Please keep us united. Please keep us standing firm in the true grace of God and looking forward to life and life everlasting. We pray these things in the mighty name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.